time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. All right, we don't have time for that. No. Welcome back chop, to the chop. Cold War 85. We're 85 episodes into the Cold War. We're still in 1945. We don't have time for intro music. No. Um, <laughs> That's the first thing to go. So in our last episode, we got into the fact that it seems from the evidence available to us that the decision to use the bomb on Japan rested with Justice James Burns, at this point special advisor to President Truman, Mm -hmm. um, and that his thinking was, we don't need to do it to end the war with Japan, we need to do it to fucking scare the Russians. And maybe to stop the Russians from invading Japan or, or getting access to a share of the spoils of war. And, and if you think about it, he's in the perfect position before he's officially Secretary of State. He's obviously got his hand into everything because he knows he's going to be getting the job. And even before that, he is, like you said, on the interim committee. And you've got to think with his personality, his background, his prestige, and the fact that he's representing the president, he is running that fucking show. And that's all that matters. And this guy has the balls to, to like I think we said earlier, to put General Marshall in his place. On the May 31st meeting, there's Oppenheimer, there's Marshall, and they're meeting with Burns. And these guys are trying to come up with different ideas. Oppen, excuse me, um, Marshall is saying, let's get a coalition of like-minded countries to get together with the atomic bomb and will force Russia into line. Oppenheimer's got his own idea about sharing the information. Burns shuts them both down and he wins the day. He wins the argument. This guy is a force of nature and he's in the right position to really influence the people that need to be influenced to get his way. And Truman often met with Burns during the first few months of his presidency. As Mm -hmm. we've mentioned in the last episode, it seems like when Truman got the job, kind of knew, A, that he didn't really have the experience, particularly in foreign relations, um, that he needed help. And also I think he felt a little bit bad. I think both he and Burns knew that Burns should be in that (laughs) job, not him. And so he... He said, look, um, to make it up to you, why don't you come in and be my special advisor and then I'll make you Secretary of State as soon as possible. Fair is fair. Um, Yeah, fair is fair. Um, But unfortunately, there are almost no records or notes of what they discussed in these meetings, Mm. which was apparently Burns' preference. (laughs) He was known for being paranoid about leaks. (laughs) There's all of the evidence suggests that he was known as being a fairly devious kind of guy. Um, Truman mentioned him at one point as his conniving Secretary of State. Thank you. The uh, the historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. actually liked Burns, found him very charming mm-hmm. uh, at a personal level. But also said about him, he was an operator. He was a kind of prior Lyndon Johnson. Ooh. In the right circles, that is a compliment. Yeah, not when Arthur Schlesinger <laughs> wrote it, though. He was pretty friendly with the Kennedys. The Kennedys hated Johnson. Good point. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> now, throughout this period, um, talking about the first few months of Truman's presidency, mm-hmm. Burns was the personal representative of Truman on all matters related to the bomb. Right. 
particularly in the interim committee's deliberations. That's why scientists, like we mentioned in the last episode, uh, Leo Zillard and others, went to Burns's house to speak to him about the use of the bomb and their fear about it, it starting a, a, an atomic weapons race, arms race. Uh, they didn't go to Truman, they went to Burns, because as far as everyone knew that Burns was the guy. The buck stopped there. Was, <laughs> yeah, the buck stops with Burns. <laughs> In fact, he said that first, and then Truman, Truman said, I'm going to use that. Yeah. <laughs> the Burns um, buck. Now, it's also quite clear that by early July 1945, when he was sworn in as Secretary of State, Burns was not only in control of, of the bomb, he was in control of all US foreign policy, mm. obviously, as the Secretary of State. Um, now, we also know, we've said this before, that the suggestion is that from people who were around that Burns didn't like Truman, even though Truman looked up to him. Um, one of Truman's closest friends, uh, his appointment secretary, Matthew Connolly, later wrote that Burns thought Truman was, and this is a quote, a non-entity with no abilities to speak of, no knowledge of how to conduct foreign policy, or much else for that matter. But he could play a piano, so all good. Yeah. So, like... (laughs) This is fascinating. The dynamic between these two guys I find fascinating. Um... According to Connolly, Burns thought Truman was a useless piece of shit. Is that like the former um, Secretary of State calling Trump a moron? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's a lot of similarities here <laughs> between what <laughs> it appears several people in the Trump administration <laughs> think about their president and what at least Jimmy Burns thought about Truman. Right. Now, Matthew Connolly also later described Burns as a very Machiavellian character and I never trusted him. (laughs) What does someone have to do to you for you to say that publicly? I mean, in that day day and age. Nowadays, it's no big deal. You can tell someone to fuck off. But, I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. Well, obviously, Trump, uh, Trump, Truman and Burns had a major falling out, which we'll get to in later episodes. But... um, you know, probably had something to do with that. Now, there was also a guy called Robert Nixon. He was a White House correspondent for the International News Service at the time. Mm -hmm. He wrote, Burns looked down on Truman. He had a superior attitude. He, in a sense, despised Truman. He looked upon Truman as an accident of history and not a very good accident (laughs) at that. And it doesn't stop there. Um, According to a guy called Clark Clifford, Admiral Leahy, who who initially had a fairly uh, good relationship with Burns, Mm -hmm. obviously these two guys were both close advisors to Roosevelt as well as to Truman, came to regard Burns as a horse's ass. (laughs) Horse's ass, as he probably would have said it. He's a horse's ass. Oh, my God. And I've got more. A guy called Bernard Baruch, who was uh, a financier who 
first presented Truman's nuclear arms control proposal to the United Nations in 1946. He regarded Burns as his friend, but also called him power crazy. He wanted to decide everything himself. Wow. Avril Harriman, Mm -hmm. after Potsdam, said, I was through with Jimmy Burns. I didn't want to have anything more to do with him. Ah. So, see, um, is Burns coming, and I don't know, I'm asking, is Burns coming across as a sociopath, or is that a slightly different different definition of that? Yeah, no, to, well, maybe. To I, want to control really everything and to think everybody else is dumber than you is not exactly being indifferent. Yeah, well, that's a little bit of narcissism. He might be a narcissistic sociopath, yeah. I mean, I, I haven't really thought about okay. it. I haven't looked at the evidence for that, but... Certainly, he was a narcissist, according to all of these people, anyway. Um, if you think about it, I mean, not only is he Secretary of State, but he's also like the new Harry Hopkins. When you have the president's ear, when the president listens to you above everyone else, and you have your own department, the Secretary of State, and as we know, there was no vice president, so he is the number two guy in line. I mean, how you take that and you mix it with his personality, what, what seems to be his personality, yeah, he's going to... He's going to lord it over everybody. Getting back to your question about sociopath, yeah. I mean, um, to drop to, to to drop two nuclear bombs on Ooh. civilian populations yeah. when you don't have to to prove a point or whatever to prove a point, yeah, is quite possibly evidence of sociopathic behavior. So it is, yeah. I think I think you might be onto something. Maybe he was a narcissistic sociopath. <sighs> Um. Mm. Now you're right. Something else you just said. So there was no vice president at this point because obviously Truman was the vice president <laughs> uh, before he became president. So they don't have a vice president, and it, it, we've got to keep in mind that Secretary of State carried a lot more weight in 1945 than it does today. I mean, mm. it's still an important position today, but at the time, before the post of National Security Advisor had been established. Secretary of State was the premier cabinet office. And with no vice president, Secretary of State was next in line of succession. So if anything happened to Truman, Burns would have become president. Which he probably should have been in the first place. And he should have been in the first place, as we've mentioned a number of times. But everything that you've just told me about him, all these opinions, I'm glad he's not. I mean, he still had the power of the president, don't get me wrong. But I'm glad the cunt never became president. <laughs> now, it also would appear to be that Truman is probably the primary candidate for convincing... Sorry, fucking Burns is the primary candidate for convincing Truman to postpone the Potsdam meeting until the bomb was ready to be tested. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he seems to be the, 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 the kingpin when it comes to all atomic and diplomatic issues... From the beginning of Truman's presidency onwards. Right. So he tells him to push, hurry up and hurry up and hurry up and test the bomb. And he tells Truman to delay going to Potsdam until we can know when they're going to test the bomb. He's got his fingers into everything. Yeah. Now, all of the other top advisors to Truman were pressing him to meet with Stalin earlier rather than later. Right. So somebody convinced him not to do that. Um, 
it seems to be that uh, that would have to be Burns. Mm-hmm. Burns it was his closest advisor. Burns was the guy who apparently, according to other uh, uh, evidence, thought that the bomb was going to be important for negotiating with Russia. Um, so putting off the meeting with Stalin until the bomb had been tested so they knew whether or not they needed to stay friendly with Stalin. Right. Comes down to Burns. All comes back to Jimmy Burns. Was that earlier when we were talking about all these advisors and they had one opinion and Truman seemed to have an opinion like them, but he didn't because he never changed anything. It just dawned on me that all of these advisors who should know intimately what Truman is thinking all seem to be taking information about him secondhand. And so I guess the point I'm trying to make is obviously someone in that group is influencing Truman that the other guys don't know about. And it probably turns out to be burned the entire time working behind the scenes, never logging in his meetings or writing anything down with the president. This guy, I guess he was truly paranoid, covered his tracks, but really pulling all the strings I'm just saying that's pretty impressive, but it just dawned on me when all these guys are like, well, I don't know what the president thinks. He told me this. He told me this. Burns is obviously, and Burns is not in that conversation. He's obviously the one pulling the strings of Truman and hiding it very well. I don't know if he was hiding it um, to the people at the time. I think the guys around Truman at the time probably well understood how influential uh, Burns was. Right. It's been hidden from history, that's, though, that's, I think, okay. to an extent. Yeah. Mm. Good point. So the question then is why did Burns push Truman and America down this path of using the bomb uh, not to end the war with Japan but to send a message to the Soviets? Mm. Now, I think it goes back to Yalta. Mm -hmm. Now, as I've mentioned before, Burns was at Yalta. Um, he helped draft the Declaration on Liberated Europe with Alger Hiss. <laughs> but uh, to remind people who don't want to go back and listen to our 25 episodes on Yalta, <laughs> the Declaration on Liberated, Liberated Europe had some, you know, vague statements about how they were going to achieve future free elections in Eastern Europe. And remember, Stalin agreed to it and he said to Molotov, look, this is so vague, we can do whatever the fuck we want, don't worry about it, let's just agree to it and right now we'll worry about the specifics later. Then, as I mentioned, I think in the last episode, FDR sent Burns back to the US early to be his representative in selling America on the Yalta agreements and on their new friendly relationship with Stalin and what a great guy Stalin was. Mm-hmm. So Burns went out on a limb Uh-oh. in front of Congress, in the media, to the American public saying, Stalin is a good guy, we can work with Stalin, we've agreed on all this stuff about how we're going to make Eastern Europe Free and democratic. Oh, shit. Um, There's a report from a a reporter uh, from the New York Sun's Washington Bureau. New York Sun, obviously, not around anymore. Um, But he went to an off-the-record briefing given by Burns. 
and he had this to say about Burns's view of Stalin. Like everyone who has returned from Russia, Burns has been tremendously impressed by Joseph Stalin. Oh, God. <laughs> Indeed, on the... This is the guy continuing, I think. Indeed, on the Polish issue, Burns said that time after time, Stalin proved his readiness to compromise. That throughout, he proved to be tractable and to possess a malleable mind. He made concession after concession. He points out that Russia will come out of this war as the most powerful nation in the world. Stalin has definite plans in the Pacific, he reported, but apart from that, wants only to rebuild Russia and to bring it to the standard of living that it ought to enjoy with its vast resources. He believes that once Stalin has settled with the Japs, we can trust him to keep the peace. Wow. Maybe he wasn't as smart as he thought he was. Well, you know, we <laughs> we went over this to the nth degree in Yalta. Um, Stalin made a big impression on everybody mm -hmm. that was there, particularly the Americans, even Churchill and some of his more drunken moments. Um, <laughs> everyone came out of Yalta thinking Stalin was a great guy. Yeah. We can work with this guy. He's he's hard but reasonable. Mm -hmm. He just wants what anyone would want in his position. He wants security for Russia, yeah. and and he wants to rebuild Russia or the Soviet Union. Um, even Jimmy Burns, apparently, according to at least this one source, thought that way. And again, he went out uh, as as FDR's representative when he got back. Uh, uh, talking about how great the Yalta negotiations went and all the great things they were going to do together with the British and the Soviets. Ooh. But, as we know, in the intervening months, Stalin had upset everybody when he goes, well, the devil's in the details and, you know, the way they were, you know, doing different things with Poland and in Eastern Europe. Right. So it sounds to me, if I read between the lines, Papa Bear, that Burns felt personally insulted and embarrassed and uh. like an idiot for believing that Stalin was going to do what they thought he was going to do coming out of Yalta and going out in public and telling people oh. that Stalin's a good guy. Okay, um, one, he's the one of many to have fallen for Stalin's charm or whatever passes for for Georgian charm. Two, wanting revenge on someone is one thing, but willing to use two uh, atomic bombs to get your revenge, tad bit excessive. <laughs> well, yeah, to maybe. Me, but to, to my way we, of thinking, I'm sorry. I'm just a country boy. If we go... Well, if we go with your model that he's a narcissistic sociopath, um, oh, then it doesn't you know, matter. No, yeah. yeah, there's there's nothing worse right. for a narcissistic sociopath than being outsmarted by somebody. Good point. So here's his 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 my take on it. Yes, <laughs> he felt like he had been duped by Stalin, and he wanted fucking revenge. Right. 
He couldn't go and drop a bomb on Stalin, though. <laughs> he, he already tried looking that up. Uh-huh. Maybe he planned on doing that later. Right. Never got the chance. Well, I'm president. In his mind, I think, he was actually acting president. Right. I agree. Um, and uh, Stalin had made him look like a fool, and he wanted to use the bomb to pull Stalin back in line. On April 30, he wrote to Walter Lippmann. I think we've mentioned Lippmann before, one of the um, fathers of modern public relations and propaganda. Mm -hmm. Um, He wrote to him, Peace in the future will not depend on what is written in any document at any conference. It will depend upon what is in the hearts of the people of Russia, Britain and the United States. We cannot promote it by promoting distrust of the Soviets. We must have confidence in each other. Hmm. So even after FDR is dead, even after you know the the the, the Molotov thing and the Poland thing and all right. of this stuff is going on, he's still saying we need to trust. <laughs> The Soviets. We can't promote distrust. We have to have confidence. But something happened. Yeah. Or he's Janus, the the two-faced god, but whatever. No, I think you're right. I think he, Mm. I mean, he's the one who went back and made all the announcements. It was in the limelight because FDR is still uh, still far away. He's the one who gets to say all these things. Uh, be quoted in the newspaper and the camera reel saying all these great things about Stalin. How could he not be humiliated to the nth degree? Indeed. Well, I so that's my take on him. Um, uh, I, I, I don't really have, um, I can't prove that that's what was going on, but I, I think that's what's going on. He felt embarrassed and he wanted to, he wanted to um, get his own back. Mm-hmm. Can I j- um, just for a second? Yeah. I, this is probably not even worth mentioning, but ju- just for the just for the fuck of it, when I was getting ready for these shows, there was a part of me that could not help but think Burns has got to be angry at Truman for getting his job. He's got to be um, jealous or or spiteful or whatever. Is there any chance Burns is purposefully not not the atomic bombs, obviously, but but as far as every every other decision taking over, is he maybe just trying to embarrass Truman, make look Truman look bad? Because everybody's telling Truman, look, you you spell out the emperor part, and we can nip this we can nip this in the bud. And for whatever reason, even though Truman has said a couple of times, yeah, it's a pretty good idea. It never happens, probably because he would probably take it back to Burns. And Burns would say, "No, no, no, that's a horrible idea. Let's don't don't even think like that." And so either Burns truly believes that he's right, and he has to tell this guy over and over again, "Stick with the unconditional surrender," or maybe I don't know, just fucking with him a little bit. Again, that's probably completely not realistic, but that was just a thought I had in the back of my head because you know he's got to feel contempt for Truman. Yeah, well, we know he. Well, we don't know. It seems like he did from all of the evidence from people that were um, right. that knew the two of them. Um, whether or not he did it to make Truman look bad, I don't think so. I, I, I think he 
thought he was going to be the next president, and I think uh, he uh, just take kind of knew that yeah. everyone knew that this this was all him doing, that he was the puppet master right. of Truman. I think he he really did think that um, they were going to have. He he kind of knew that it was going to be a, a war against the Soviets in one way, shape, or form, mm-hmm. and he was trying to get the upper hand on them. Gotcha. And felt personally insulted that they had um, outsmarted him at Yalta. Okay. We can get a small hint of Truman's thinking just before Potsdam from a comment he made to a guy called Jonathan Daniels who was uh, part of his inner circle, went on to work on his campaign staff in 48. According to notes Daniels made uh, a few years later, he said that Truman explained going into the Potsdam meetings that he felt that uh, if it explodes, as I think it will, I'll certainly have a hammer on those boys. Talking about the bomb, of course, mm-hmm. sorry. That if it explodes like I think it will, we'll have a hammer. Um, some Sounds similar to what he said earlier, that he would have more cards in his hand right. if he postponed the Potsdam meeting. Um, now, Daniels later wrote a book uh, where he said he seemed to be referring not merely to the still unconquered Japs, but to the Russians with whom he was having difficulty in shaping a collaboration for lasting peace. Mm. Now, uh, there's also a journal entry the president wrote just before the first plenary session of Potsdam got underway. He said, I told Stalin that I'm no diplomat, but usually said yes and no to questions after hearing all the argument. It pleased him. I asked if he had the agenda for the meeting. He said that he had and that he had some more questions to present. I told him to fire away. He did, and it is dynamite. But I have some dynamite too, which I'm not exploding now. (laughs) There's another uh, journal entry that he makes um, uh, uh, where he says... This is about a a conversation he had when he was sailing to Potsdam. Mm Mm-hmm. Had a long talk with my able and conniving Secretary of State. This is, of course, Burns. My, but he has a keen mind, and he is an honest man. But all country politicians are alike. They are sure all other politicians are circuitous in their dealings. When they are told the straight truth, unvarnished, it is never believed. An asset, sometimes. Oh, I do have one comment to make, but it's it's. I think it's at the end of Potsdam when he's uh he's when Truman is getting ready to put out the Potsdam Declaration. So I guess I should wait until you're done. You're you're up to that point. Um. Well, I'm not getting to that point. Okay. You can say that if you want. We've already covered Potsdam. Okay. Yeah. Good point. Episodes, okay. I think. No, but I, I, you want to remind us of something? I just well, actually, I did not know about this until I until I uh, we got to these shows that. Uh, that supposedly Truman had something about the emperor in the Potsdam Declara- Declaration, but Burns talked him into removing it. And only Burns is the only person who had this view, and all, none of the other advisors did. So so from extrapolating that information, that supposedly he talked Burns, he talked Truman out of removing that one little part from the Declaration. And again, if he did, that's pretty, that's power. On July 18th, um, Churchill met with Truman for lunch during 
Potsdam, obviously. Um, He later wrote a note to the cabinet where he said that Truman believed that the Japanese war might end much quicker than he'd expected. (laughs) Churchill was also pushing for a clarification of the surrender terms. He said, I imparted to the president the disclosure about the offer from the Mikado made to me by Marshal Stalin the night before. The president also thought the war might come to a speedy end. Here I explained that Marshal Stalin had not wished to transmit this information direct to him for fear he might think the Russians were trying to influence him towards peace. In the same way, I would abstain from saying anything which would indicate that we were in any way reluctant to go on with the war against Japan as long as the United States thought fit. However, I dwelt upon the tremendous cost in American life and, to a smaller extent, in British life, which would be involved in forcing unconditional surrender upon the Japanese. It was for him to consider whether this might not be expressed in some other way so that we got all the essentials for future peace and security. Why aren't I doing this in my Churchill voice? (laughs) I'm yet left the Japanese some show of saving their military honour and some assurance of their national existence after they had complied with all safeguards necessary for the conqueror. The president countered by saying that he did not think the Japanese had any military honour after Pearl Harbour. I contented myself with saying that at any rate, they had something for which they were ready to face certain death in very large numbers, and this might not be so important to us as to them. He then became quite sympathetic, and spoke, as Mr. Stimson had to me two days earlier, of the terrible responsibilities that rested upon him in regard to the unlimited effusion of American blood. My own impression is that there is no question of a rigid insistence upon the phrase unconditional surrender, apart from the essentials necessary for world peace and future security, and for the punishment of a guilty and treacherous nation. It has been evident to me in my conversations with Mr. Simpson, General Marshall, and now with the President, that they are searching their hearts on this subject, and that we have no need to press it. So, uh... Nice. We're back with Churchill. Hey! (laughs) The Academy Award goes too. Little Piggy's back. (laughs) I miss doing Little Piggy. Um... Uh, 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 Truman's Journal of July 18th uh, talks about this conversation with Churchill. He said, PM and I ate alone, discussed Manhattan. It is a success. Decided to tell Stalin about it. Stalin had told PM of telegram from Jap Emperor asking for peace. Stalin also read his answer to me. It was satisfactory. Believe Japs will fold up before Russia comes in. Hmm. That's all the Truman has to say. Um, Again, he had agreed with Stalin that they would enter the war on August 15th. They actually declared war on August 9th, but he used the bombs before that. Now, just again, um, as an American, this is hard for me, but the very first question, of course, this is hour three for us, but the very first question you put out there was, if saving American lives was the number one priority, why did we not spell out or change from unconditional surrender? And everything that we've talked about for the last two and a half hours 
has removed, it doesn't so much answer the question, but it has removed so many of the, mate, the possibilities that it is left with. The one that, that you talked about was that we're using the bomb, and even if it was Burns instead of Truman, it doesn't change the fact that we're using the bomb to check the Russians, to let them know that what we're capable of, to keep them out of the Pacific, and to regain the dominance, because they did have the larger land force by this time in the war. It's just, it's just, yeah. you know, that's, that seems to be the reality of the situation and nothing's going to change that. You know, there's, there's, um, an argument that even some people have made to me, um, in emails recently, uh, who are listening to the show that, uh, using the bomb saved lives, um, by using the bombs on Japan, it, it prevented another world war. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that was part of Burns's thinking. If we use it once, we won't have to use it again. Okay, we use it twice, we right. won't have to use it a third time. Right. Well, I don't have any evidence, though, that that was his thinking. I, I, that That's yeah. interesting. It's an interesting line of logic, but I'm not sure that's what was in his mind. Well, well and, that, and that's because of him on purpose being so secretive. But the point, but the point is, if we, had, if we invaded, yes, we would have lost a lot of American lives, but there would have been obviously a lot more Japanese lives lost. Because if you remember how Okinawa went down, when they ran out of ammunition, they pretty much charged at the Americans, and the Americans just shot them all to, to bits. Something similar would have happened in Japan, where they just would have attacked the Americans. The Americans would have just blown them away, and we would have lost 500,000, but they probably would have lost 5 million. But the point is, to me, when you take that, and you take Burns's possible mentality, and you take the fact that we killed more people with firebombing than we did with the two atomic bombs, I mean, is, is in that light, is the atomic bomb still such a big deal? You know, like, if you die by fire or by atomic bomb, does it really matter how you die? And if you put all those things together, it's possible Burns was thinking he was doing the right thing in a very bad situation. You just wish you could know the definitive truth. You wish you had a diary or, or an interview or something with this guy. But for whatever reason, he was obsessed with secrecy. Now, when Stalin advised that the emperor was seeking a surrender, mm-hmm. it changed some people's views on the course of action. When Stimson, Secretary of War, got confirmation of this, they um, wrote a memo, Stimson and McCloy wrote a memo um, indicating that they should give Japan a warning that they had a bomb and sort of push the peace process forwards. Right. Um, Stimson sent a memo to Truman that stated the warning should be given an ample time to permit a national reaction to set in. Mm-hmm. Um, Stimson then sent a memo to Burns pushing the same thing. Like, we know the bomb works. We know the emperor is already trying to surrender. 
we should give them a warning, give them a chance. Burns, uh, according to Stimson, um, was opposed to a prompt and early warning to Japan. So, the Secretary for War (laughs) wanted to give the Japanese a warning and an opportunity to surrender before they used the bomb. Yeah, because how many times have you gone on about the pace, the pace, the pace? Tell them about the bomb, show them the bomb, send someone over, and then give them time to process it. Because this is the military. This is the government. They have to have time to work things out. And they're not going anywhere. You've got them surrounded. Give them time. Um, There's a phrase in Stimson's diary where he says it was obvious that a clear decision had already been made, so I pressed it no further. Now, this is the Secretary of War versus the Secretary of State now, Mm. Burns. Right. It's quite obvious who the top dog is in this decision-making. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I just want to be very clear that even the Secretary of War and General Marshall, the Chief of Staff of the Army, wanted to give the Japanese a warning before they used it or use it on a purely military target, then give them a warning in Marshall's position. Right. It wasn't the accepted position of everybody that they should drop it without a warning. And, 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 and the fact that Americans, some Americans, I don't want to paint everyone the same brush, but some, the majority of Americans still seem to think that was the case, that everyone understood that that's what they needed to do. Like I often hear, well, there was no point. They wouldn't have surrendered. There was no point giving them a warning. There was no point doing a demonstration. It wouldn't have had any effect. Right. That certainly wasn't the position of the Secretary of War and the Chief of Staff of the Army. So why do people have that view today? Well, it's been 70 years of propaganda that's led them to believe that, is my only conclusion. Yeah, until I started reading books on my own after college, I did not have a a clue as far as the uh, Japanese government and the emperor himself getting involved in trying to initiate peace talks. I had to go out and search it on my own by books written by, for, for lack of a better word, independent authors. That information is not available in, in, uh, in high school or middle school. Mm. You have to wonder how much of that, I don't know, is it, is it deliberate or is it just a, a, a self-organized filtering? Yes. No one really is comfortable with this, and so they just kind of steer clear of it. Well, and again, I I hate to use this word flippantly, but I don't think it's evil purposes. I think it truly is. It goes against what we think of ourselves because because there's a lot of jokes. Uh, If you ever listen, if you ever watch BBC British humor, the Britons constantly talk about how they won World War II. And of course, the Americans laugh at them because we know that we won World War II. And so we're the heroes. We we had to do a horrible thing. The Japanese were so stubborn, they made us drop the bomb, two bombs on them. But the point is, we're heroes. We won the war. 
And yeah, just just to publish or put out or put out something that goes against that and it makes us feel bad about ourselves. That's not exactly a recipe for financial success in the United States because the rest of us will tell you tear you apart for for saying or for writing such a thing. Yeah. And people in iTunes reviews will say that we have an obvious hatred of the United States because we mention it. I do not hate the United States. Um, we have um, we have some evidence of what people were thinking. Um, some of the American leaders uh, after the Alamogordo results came in that uh, when they heard about the Trinity test. Mm-hmm. Sort of interesting to get these snapshots from history. McCloy, Assistant Secretary of War, mm-hmm. um, in his diary entry of July 21st, 1945, the report came in today of the cataclysmic event at Albuquerque. The description of it leaves little doubt that we are on the edge of a new world, that of atomic force. It is probably of greater significance than the discovery of electricity. The phenomena of the explosion were so vivid that words seemed to fail those who described it. Truman's Journal, July 25th. We have discovered the most terrible bomb in the history of the world. It may be the fire destruction prophesied in the Euphrates Valley era after Noah and his fabulous ark. Anyway, we think we have found the way to cause a disintegration of the atom. An experiment in the New Mexico desert was startling, to put it mildly. 13 pounds of the explosive caused the complete disintegration of a steel tower 60 feet high, created a crater 6 feet deep and 1,200 feet in diameter, knocked over a steel tower half a mile away and knocked down men 10,000 yards away. The explosion was visible for more than 200 miles and audible for 40 miles and more. Wow. Stimson read a report to Truman and Burns um, which said, In a remote section of the Alamogordo Air Base, New Mexico, the first full-scale test was made of the implosion-type atomic fission bomb. For the first time in history, there was a nuclear explosion. The test was successful beyond the most optimistic expectations of anyone. I estimate the energy generated to be in excess of the equivalent of 15,000 to 20,000 tonnes of TNT, and this is a conservative estimate. There were tremendous blast effects. There was a lightning effect with a radius of 20 miles equal to several suns in midday. A huge ball of fire was formed, which lasted for several seconds. This ball mushroomed and rose to a height of over 10,000 feet. The feeling of the entire assembly was profound awe. Anyway, we've talked before about the reactions of people were there. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the president's position on this is sort of clarified a little bit by Admiral Lay's diary entry from June 15th. Um, This is when Truman's directing him to prepare an agenda for Potsdam. Now, this is well before the Alamogordo test, obviously, a month before. Right. He tells him it's time to take the offensive. A War Department memorandum the next day by Colonel Kenneth W. Tracy also notes that the president feels the U.S. is by far the strongest country in the world, and he proposes to take the lead at the coming meeting. 
and that in this connection he proposes to raise all the controversial questions. So going into Potsdam, Truman was obviously quite confident that the bomb was going to be a success and Mm -hmm. that he was going to try and put the Soviets on the, the back foot. And as we've seen before, as soon as he got notice of the successful test, his attitude towards Stalin changed and he started to become a lot more uppity in the meetings. Right. If I can add on to that, and, and this really gave me pause, um, on July 4th, 1945, Britain officially asks, the, uh, excuse me, the United States officially asks Britain, can they use the bomb against Japan? Obviously, we're using American-British technology, so we have to get their permission. They approve. That's no big deal. However, soon after that, the United States asks Britain for permission to use the bomb against a third party, not Japan. And we are given permission. So again, that, and that probably, I don't think that came out for, for years later afterwards, but the point is someone, whether it's Truman, whether it's Burns or whatever, someone's clearing all decks in case this bomb has to be used on someone other than Japan. Yeah, so there was um, there's a, an entry from a guy called Walter Brown, who was uh, a politician from South Carolina. <laughs> That was good. Um, thank you. Um, uh, July 18th, a diary entry from him. Um, he talks about Jimmy Burns. JFB, as he refers to him, had hoped Russian declaration of war against Japan would come out of this conference. This is Potsdam, obviously. Now he thinks United States and United Kingdom will have to issue joint statement giving Japs two weeks to surrender or face destruction. Secret weapon will be ready by that time. On July 20th, he writes, Burns hopes Sung will stand firm and then Russians will not go in war. He, then he feels Japan will surrender before Russia goes to war and this will save China. If Russia goes in the war, he knows Stalin will take over and China will suffer. Yeah, because the American fear was once you get the Russians in, once you let the Russians in, you know, Port Arthur, uh, Darien, uh, Manchuria, they're going to get in there and you're not going to be able to get them out unless you're willing to use force. Whether that was real or not, that was the American fear. Not the American fear, because the Americans have been asking Stalin to get involved and, and had given away all of that. They'd already conceded all of that territory to Stalin in their negotiations. Yes and no, but my point is, to use a Churchillian phrase, uh, it'd be a slippery slope. Once you let the Russians in, there's no telling where they're going to stop, because obviously, um, even though Stalin had been making promises to back Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists against Mao Zedong and the communists, he could have easily changed his mind. He could have backed the communists. I mean, the point is, it doesn't really matter which true or not. The Americans don't trust Stalin to keep his word because of some of the stuff that's going on in Poland and Eastern Europe. And so it doesn't matter which reality, what matters is their perception. And they don't feel they, or at least the, the right people feel they can't trust Stalin. Well, yeah. And what was going on at the time? You remember coming out of Yalta um, when they conceded that Soviets should get uh, big chunks of Manchuria, etc., in mm-hmm. return for, um, getting involved in the war. Um, TV Sung, the head of China, the prime minister, I'm not sure what his position what he was. was he wor- he was working minister, for uh, Chiang Kai-shek. Yeah, he was either foreign minister or something, ambassador, something like that. 
he was the premier mm. uh, then. Yeah, this time, uh, yeah, working for Chiang Kai-shek in the, the late 40s, mid-40s. Yeah, that's right. Um, he's negotiating with Stalin over what they're going to get, building railways, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Burns is trying to get him to delay the negotiations or stretch them out as long as possible um, so they can end the war and, and, and the Chinese can keep as much as possible. Brown's diary again has a note. He says, JFB still hoping for time, believing that after the atomic bomb, Japan will surrender and Russia will not get in so much on the kill, thereby being in a position to press for claims against China. So, I'm sorry, but Burns knows they're going to drop the bomb, try to get Sung not to give away too much, because if they can hurry up and drop the bomb, then that will check Russia, and China is saved. Yeah. Jeez. They're dropping saved. that bomb. They are dropping that motherfucking bomb, aren't they? Yeah. So, uh, Burns also explained to historian um, Herbert Feist that he was trying to encourage Sung to prolong the negotiations until after the United States ended the war. So plenty of evidence to say that was what was in Burns's mind at the time too. Mm-hmm. Um, stop the war without Russia getting involved and then Russia can't get as much of China and we can teach the Russians a lesson and show them that we have the bomb. Win, win, win. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's this is a letter that Truman wrote to his wife Bess after he got news of the Trinity test and he and he um, got all uppity. He wrote, uh, <laughs> "We had a tough meeting yesterday. I reared up on my hind legs and told them where to get off, and they got off. Oh. I have I have to make perfectly plain to them at least once a day that so far as this president is concerned, Santa Claus is dead." <laughs> And that my first interest is USA. Then I want the Jap War one, and I want them both in it. Damn, defensive much? <laughs> Tough guy. The thing I like about this is he actually writes, I told him where to get off. He writes M, like apostrophe E-M. Right. He's, he, he wrote <laughs> Even writing tough guy. Oh, my God. He's writing tough guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I don't know, man. It, it, look, it, it seems to me to be pretty clear. We could go on and on here uh, uh, um, drawing this out and picking apart evidence, but it seems very clear that in the minds of Burns and Truman at this juncture, mm-hmm. the decision to use the bomb was in part to war- show Russia that they had a, a weapon and the Russians should back the fuck off. And secondly, to end the war before the Russians could get involved to weaken the Russia, the Soviets' claims on uh, territorial reacquisitions in China, even though they had promised them that at Yalta and I think it had been confirmed at Potsdam. Um, that's why the Soviets were going to get involved. The Soviets wouldn't have got involved in the war if that wasn't um, the deal, right? Why do it unless you're going to get something? Exactly. But at the same time, they were planning on, what would you call it, fucking Russia over? 
<laughs> yeah. Hey. Although Stalin did say, good luck with that bomb. You should use it as soon as possible. Um, <laughs> he probably knew they were going to use it. He, he already knew they were going to use it. Yeah. Jeez. Well, anyway, I think that's where we're going to wrap up this episode, Ray. I think we've done enough on that. I mean, there's no doubts in my mind that um, that was why the Americans dropped the bomb. I just have to say, as an American, there are at least 17 instances where memos were written that were put in front of Truman about, you clarify the emperor and this is a done deal. This war will be over. These are coming from experts. These are coming from people that have been reading Japanese uh, messages. It doesn't happen. It gets stretched out. You can factor in burns, whatever. But the point is, we don't give Japan what they need to surrender. The war's still going on. We test the bomb. It works. We use the bomb as physically, literally, as soon as we could. And like you said, a big reason for that was Russia. All right. Well... Boys and girls, that's, that's it. All there was to um, it. If, yeah. if if you need any more convincing, um, I, I don't know, man. Like, uh, let let us know if you think that's not enough. But uh, seems pretty evident to me that that's what was going on. I guess in the next episodes, we will actually get into the bombing and the af- the after effects of the bombing. Um, but but I want everyone listening to this to start to to do your best to re-educate the people around you about the reason the bombs were dropped. I mean, I don't suggest you bring it up at every dinner party, but at least on the anniversary every year of the bombing of Hiroshima, normally get some media coverage. Right. And increasingly over the years, in the last 20 years, um, I've seen an increasing level of discussion in parts of the media uh, about at least asking the question, was it necessary? Was it moral? Was it justified? Thanks in large part to um, certain people that have pushed this. I mean, I think Chomsky, I think um, the Australian author um, whose name I can't remember, John Pil- Pilger. John Pilger, he's written a lot about this over the years. His articles tend to get a little bit of airplay every year on this. Um, thanks to Gail Perovitz, whose book on the decision to drop the atomic bomb um, we've referenced a lot for these episodes. Um, it gets a little bit more epi, but I encourage you on the anniversary of the bomb, come August, um, which is actually probably when we'll be doing our next episodes around about then, uh, talk about it. Uh, bring it up. Post, post links to these posts. Um, post links to some articles, engage your friends and family in a conversation about this because it's a very important part of world history, Cold War history, American history, Western history, that we think about the decisions that our leaders have made, not necessarily just because of the historical context, but because of today. You know, the, 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 the things haven't changed much from obviously 1945 to today. And, and the reasons that our political leaders make decisions and why they tell us they made those decisions and how they justify how they made those decisions haven't changed. So Mm -hmm. it's important that we understand that you can't believe everything you're told. You can't believe everything you read. It's way more complex than that quite often. And there are things that are hidden from us that we won't know for decades, 
But we should still ask the hard questions. How do we know we're being told the truth? How how do we know that we're not being fed a load of bullshit? Um, which is what the bullshit filters for. Just to give a plug to our <laughs> weekly news show. Never be afraid to look for the truth. The truth is out there. Now, uh, you just won't find it in the X-Files reboot. Uh, Now, I just want to point out, for those people that are listening in real time, um, we're probably not going to be around much in July because we're going to be in Europe um, uh, uh, fucking around. So um, uh, uh, we'll be back probably in August. Um, If we're not arrested. But uh, if we... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if uh, uh, yeah, we will be trying to push out shows where we can, when we can in Europe. It'll depend on bandwidth and spare time and levels of exhaustion. We'll be trying to do stuff, yeah. But um, we'll be back as soon as we can. So please Promise. hold the line. Uh, yeah, we'll come back with lots of great stories. Uh, yeah. Make it worth your while. Um, and uh, that's it. Descended across the continent.